All right, one minute past the hour. Welcome back, everybody. After the uh, break last week, appreciate your patience with that. And uh, in the spirit of taking breaks, I have an announcement. We have to take another break next week, which was uh, previously unforeseen, but will be necessary. So we are going to uh, extend the end of the book of John or uh, John's gospel here. Uh, But uh, we will return. So we'll be off on the 11th and we will return on the 18th. So, and then um, we should, well, Robert, do you want to, do you want to talk about how many lessons are left or should we save that for next time? Uh, Sure. No, we can talk about it. Um, So I anticipate that when we come back on the 18th, we will probably have three weeks left. So the 18th, the 25th and the fourth. Now, you know, that could change since I don't write all of my material ahead of time. I'm always just playing catch up, but I think that uh, should be the case. Okay. So we will be off next week on the 11th and then plan for at least three more lessons in John's gospel. uh, If you are looking to participate in the rest of this particular uh, lesson. Anyway, that's all I have. Uh, Without further ado, Robert, of course, has another discussion and lesson for us. Okay. As usual, let's begin with the Bible reading. Then, because it was the day of preparation, so that the bodies should not stay on the crosses on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was an especially important one, the Jewish leaders asked Pilate to have the victim's legs broken and the bodies taken down. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the two men who had been crucified with Jesus, first the one and then the other. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and blood and water flowed out immediately. And the person who saw it has testified, and his testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, so that you may also believe. For these things happen so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not a bone of his will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on the one whom they have pierced. After this, Joseph of Arimathea, a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders, asked Pilate if he could remove the body of Jesus. Pilate gave him permission, so he went and took the body away. Nicodemus, the man who had previously come to Jesus at night, accompanied Joseph, carrying a mixture of myrrh and aloes weighing about 75 pounds. Then they took Jesus' body and wrapped it, with the aromatic spices in strips of linen cloth according to Jewish burial customs. Now at the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden was a new tomb where no one had yet been buried. And so, because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and the tomb was nearby, they placed Jesus' body there. The Gospel of John, chapter 19. Okay, so we are finally to the end of chapter 19. Um, I am going to begin by discussing... You know, several historical things and and Old Testament prophecy like I normally do. And hopefully if we have time, I would like to talk about what the death of Jesus means, which I really think is the main purpose. We're all here. Um, But let's begin with the the quote unquote normal stuff. First, let's talk about this idea of breaking bones. The fact, you know, the, the passage we just read makes a big deal out of the fact that none of Jesus' bones were broken. And that's that's very important because it connects us to some Old Testament prophecy. Okay. Now, to set the stage before we explain that, why are the Jews requesting that the legs be broken of the prisoners, right? There's three people crucified. They're saying, hey, go ahead and break their legs. To the Romans, they're saying this, so that they will die quicker. Crucifixion, like we have discussed, could take days. The you know somebody could be on the cross for for days on end in in horrific pain. Um, but this presented a problem for the Jews because under Jewish law, and this comes from the Old Testament, from Deuteronomy uh, twenty one verses twenty two and twenty three. If a person was executed, they had to be buried that same day. They, they could not be left uncovered, i.e. not buried, uh, overnight. And uh, this law, you know, the, the Jews followed 
religiously, no pun intended. Um, well, in, in consider the situation that they're in. Just leaving uh, an executed person unburied um, would have violated their law. But not only that, the, the next day, right, this is all happening on a Friday. The next day was the Sabbath uh, as a sort of holy day. So not only are they going to break the law, but they will break the Sabbath. And, and recall also that that's the very reason why Jesus is being crucified, right? Because he broke the Sabbath. I mean, this is a huge deal. And then if that were not enough, the Sabbath that is forthcoming is a special Sabbath. It's the Sabbath of Passover, arguably the holiest of festivals in the Jewish calendar. Okay, So it would have been horrifically offensive to allow the, the three crucified men to remain on the cross overnight. So the Jews go to the Romans and say, please, let's end this quickly, break their legs. And, um, and, you know, so, so these people can be buried. Um, the, you know, if, if you break the legs of somebody who, who is crucified, they won't be able to hold up their weight for very long. So they will suffocate. Um, that's why it, it speeds up the death. Uh, their legs would be broken with a heavy mallet. It's a really gruesome image, but that is what's happening here. Uh, the Jews are freaking out. Oh my goodness, we got to get these people buried quickly. And the the Romans say, "Okay, well, you know, fine, we'll accommodate you." Um, and they go break the prisoners' legs. But when they get to Jesus, Jesus is already dead. Now, recall the very last verse that we covered last time. It said Jesus gave up his spirit. It makes it sound very intentional. So, um, I think it's fair to say that that Jesus dies before this point. On purpose, as kind of weird as that may sound, uh, so that this prophecy in the Old Testament may be fulfilled, or or the scripture, I ought to say. Now, you may be thinking, what scripture? What, what are we talking about here? Well, there is a very clear connection here between the Paschal lamb, the lamb that would be sacrificed during the Passover. Again, keep in mind, the Passover is the very festival being celebrated when Jesus is being crucified. Okay, so the Paschal Lamb, there's a connection between it and Jesus. In fact, the way that we would normally say this is that the Paschal Lamb is a type for Jesus. Um, what is What do I mean by type or typology? This is a kind of metaphor or a kind of symbolism that is used extensively in the Old and New Testament, but it's not exclusive to, to the Bible. The idea is that Earlier in the story, there will be something that symbolizes a thing that will come in the future. But this symbol that comes earlier can't fully capture what, what the real thing, you know, the, the thing in the future is. It can at most capture, um, you know, one aspect of it or, or a little bit of, of its essence, so to speak. And again, we see this in throughout the, the Old and New Testament. And it's important for us to make this connection because this is how John is teaching us the theology of what's going on, right? John doesn't come out and, and, and explain, and Jesus' death means this and this and that. Instead, what John does is, look, Jesus' bones were not broken, just like the Paschal lamb bones were not broken. Now you connect the dots. Well, what are those dots? You guys probably remember many sessions ago, we started up, or sorry, we discussed the start of the, the Paschal Lamb tradition. This happened when the Jews were being oppressed by the Egyptians, and God is sending plague after plague after plague on the Egyptians. And the worst plague is about to come, which will wipe out the firstborn of every family, and really including even the animals. And God says, uh, sacrifice a lamb and take some of its blood and put it on your doorpost. And I will just essentially skip your household from suffering this penalty. And I'm going to read, um, you know, a little bit from, from this text in, in Exodus. This is in chapter 12 of Exodus. In case you want to go find it, you can always go look at the blog, but it says your lamb must be perfect. A male one year old, 
You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. You must care for it until the 14th day of this month. and Then the whole community of Israel will kill it around sundown. And then the next paragraph, it says, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. Their blood will be assigned for you on the houses where you are, so that when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And also in Exodus, it explains how to sacrifice the lamb. And it's very explicit that it says, you must not break a bone of the lamb. And in case you, you know, you might be tempted to think, oh, but who would even draw this connection? This is, you know, this is just like theologians making stuff up. No, this idea of not breaking a, a bone of the Paschal lamb was so important in their culture, like in first century uh, Judaism, when, when Jesus is being crucified, that at the time of Jesus, if someone broke a lamb, I'm sorry, broke a bone of the Paschal lamb, they would be liable to receiving the 40 lashes. Okay. Essentially, uh, the, the maximum, the, the Jews would have only done 39 lashes, but you get what I mean. Uh, the, the worst punishment that they could give by law, short of execution. Um, so why am I spending any time on this? Because we need to connect the dots if we want to understand what John is telling us, which is Jesus is, is just like the lamb, or put another way, the lamb is a type for Jesus. The lamb must be perfect. Um, it must be, uh, it must live among the people for a certain period of time. And then the whole community must come out and slaughter it. And what is the purpose of slaughtering the lamb? That anyone who is covered by its blood will not suffer the judgment of God. Okay. And that very much gets to the reason that Jesus had to die. I will talk more about that later, but uh, you know, I think it, it's very important to point that out, how it is that John is teaching that. Okay. So not only were none of Jesus' bones broken, but his side was pierced. And here John takes another uh, moment to say, this is just like the scripture said, you know, or this is so that the scriptures may be fulfilled. And yet again, we have to ask, what is John talking about? What you know, what is the scripture that he's discussing? And there's really two things here. Um, there, there's two different ideas. One, uh, John explicitly quotes uh, a passage from Zechariah that says, they will look on the one whom they have pierced. This is out of Zechariah chapter 12. And uh, later rabbis would also interpret this, this chapter of Zechariah to be messianic in nature. So it's not just Christians who understand all these connections. Even Jews saw the connections as well. Um, or, well, in this case, it's later rabbis, so that Jews would eventually see similar connections, I, I ought to say. Um, but that, that passage in Zechariah, I'm just going to read a little bit, but it says, In that day there will be a fountain opened up for the dynasty of David and the people of Jerusalem, to cleanse them from sin and impurity. Okay. Now, um, we really haven't discussed this much because John's gospel doesn't deal with lineage a whole lot, um, but Jesus is a descendant of David, and this is a huge deal. You know, there's all sorts of also typology and, and whatnot that goes with it, but the other three gospels lean more heavily on that. John pretty much omits that theme. Um, but the, the reason I explain that now is because when we read that, in that day, there will be a fountain open up for the dynasty of David. You know, Jesus is from the dynasty of David. And what will happen, they will be cleansed from sin and impurity, right? which gets us to kind of the other purpose of the death of Christ, this idea of cleansing from sin and impurity. Again, more on that later, but I'm just trying to make all the connections that are in the text. Um, and then... This idea, right, so what I was just discussing has to do with Jesus being pierced on his side. But then there's another kind of odd event that happens, which is that blood and water come out. Now, technically, this might not be miraculous. Um, not This is kind of a silly thing to, to bring up, but I'll say it just for, for you know, the sake of, of um, teaching this fairly. Um, 
if sometimes, uh, you know, if you were to stab a guy, if you stab the pericardial sac around the heart, the liquid that would come out would look like a mixture of blood and water. So what's happening here is not necessarily miraculous, I suppose, but that's not the point at all, right? The point is <laughs> that blood and water come out and the, the, the meaningful part is not the blood, is the water. We have um, been talking about water, this water of, you know, this living water at time and time again throughout the Gospel of John. This is one of the key themes. So, uh, the, of course, the first time, I think it's the first time, it's certainly the most notable, uh, you know, part of John's Gospel in which this comes up is when Jesus is speaking to the woman at the well, right? The Samaritan woman. And they have this, this conversation, and then Jesus says, whoever drinks some of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. But the water that I will give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up to eternal life. So Jesus will provide something that you know, he uses water to symbolize that will be this living water that will never run out. Well, then later in chapter 7 of John, that Jesus returns to this symbol of water. This is at the very end of the Feast of Booths. And he says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and let the one who believes in me drink. Just as the scripture says, from within him will flow rivers of living water. Now he said this about the spirit whom those who believed in him were going to receive. For the spirit had not yet been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Okay. That passage in chapter seven is wonderful because it interprets all this for us. We don't have to be guessing, right? What does the water symbolize? It symbolizes the spirit. And when will it come? It will come when Jesus is glorified. Well, what do we mean by Jesus being glorified? We mean his death on the cross, right? Jesus uses that exact same word in chapter 17 to refer to his crucifixion. So now we have kind of all the puzzle pieces to put together. Upon the death of Jesus, then the spirit may come. and The spirit is symbolized by water. So it is, it is this very powerful moment when Jesus dies and water flows out of him. Uh, you know, if, again, if you put all those puzzle pieces together, it's, it's an incredible image of what the death of Jesus means. Um, well, so that's that's kind of the end of the crucifixion, right? You, you have the crucifixion, you, you have this idea of no bones are broken, the, the spear through his side, the blood and water, and then comes the time of burial. As I explained in the beginning, burial must happen very quickly because the Sabbath is fast approaching. Another thing that we need to understand to make sense of the story from a very practical standpoint is that remember that. Jews, uh, they begin their days not like we do, right? I, we begin a day at midnight. They begin it at sunset of what we would consider the prior day. Uh, put very simply, at 6 p.m. on Friday is when Saturday begins. So if, you know, if Jesus was crucified around 3 p.m., which is about the right time, you know, and all these events happen, we're about to talk about Joseph of Arimathea and whatnot, it's, it's pretty close to 6 p.m. Jesus and the other two uh, people crucified must be buried quickly, very, very quickly. Um, well, now we're introduced, or that's kind of an overstatement, but we're introduced to Joseph of Arimathea. He goes to Caesar, I mean, not to Caesar, uh, to Pilate, forgive me. He goes to Pilate and says, may I have the body of Jesus so that I may bury him? This you know, this could raise a sort of like historical question. Hey, would the Romans allow this? Would the Romans give over the body of Jesus to one of his followers? And really, historically, this is very plausible or highly plausible, I have to say, uh, for, for multiple reasons. We have accounts of the Romans doing this, despite the fact that it was Roman law that the bodies of those executed should not be buried, right? The Romans would let the bodies rot there for weeks and weeks, and eventually they, they would throw them into just a common burial. Um, but, 
you know, the whole point of the Romans to go through crucifixion was as propaganda. Like you do this and that's how you're going to end up. But like I said, we have historical accounts of the Romans turning over the, the body of an executed person over to the family or friends who requested it. Moreover, keep in mind that Pilate did not really believe that Jesus was guilty. So he had no good reason to, uh, you know, not agree to the request. And if Pilate had not agreed, he would have had a revolt on his hands, which would have been politically disastrous. Because not only did the friends of Jesus want Jesus buried, buried, so did the enemies, right? The religious elite of the Jews wanted Jesus buried just as much. Otherwise, like I explained, the, the, the land would be desecrated, the Sabbath would be desecrated, the Passover would be desecrated, just bad all around. Okay. So this is this is very historically plausible what we're seeing here. Um, now, Joseph of Arimathea, we're told, was a secret follower of Jesus. He had been afraid to, to come out as a follower of Jesus because um, he was afraid of the, of the Jewish elite, although he was part of the Jewish elite. John doesn't tell us that explicitly. We could probably safely uh, you know, infer it. But uh, the other Gospels tell us that explicitly. He was part of the Jewish elite. But even then, he was afraid of them. Well, here, in an act of, of courage, he, he is, you know, he's willing to publicly support Jesus, even if done so posthumously. Additionally, it, this was actually quite courageous before the Romans, because, like I said, technically Roman law was that, that you know, it was illegal to bury an executed man. Um, and we know, because we know the end of the story, that Pilate would go, sure. You know, you can have them, but Joseph of, of Arimathea would not have known that. So he's bold uh, before the Romans, he's bold before the Jews. And then we have another character, another recurring char character, I ought to say, who appears in this story. That would be Nicodemus. We met Nicodemus in chapter three, yes, chapter three. When Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night, presumably this is a secret meeting. It doesn't explicitly say that. But again, I think it's a fair conclusion. Um, and it, I'm sure everyone remembers this discussion because this is the whole discussion about being born again. Um, when, when the same expression can mean either born again or born from above, Nicodemus is confused. But the key, I think, to remember is that Nicodemus comes to Jesus and says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs that you do unless God is with him. So Nicodemus already believed that Jesus came from God, but he did not have the guts to come out and say it publicly. Then in chapter 7, when the Jewish elite is wanting to prosecute Jesus, Nicodemus makes a kind of an argument to keep Jesus out of trouble, but without outing himself. He doesn't let anybody know he's actually a follower of Jesus. So he still doesn't have the guts. Well, in chapter 19, Nicodemus finally does it. Right? He, he just outright supports Jesus by uh, bringing spices for his burial. So Joseph of Arimathea provides the tomb and Nicodemus provides the spices. Now, a Jewish burial is it, it would be a little bit unusual to us that, you know, there's no hole that is dug. There's no moving of dirt. There's not a coffin. Instead, the body would be put in a cave. And let me, I guess, give a caveat. If, if you had the funds, right, a, a family that didn't have the funds for, for a decent burial may employ a different custom. But in this case, Joseph and, and Nicodemus are clearly wealthy and, and, they can give Jesus a proper Jewish burial. Okay. So what is this proper Jewish burial? The, the person would be buried in a cave. Uh, the cave was not very big. You wouldn't even be able to stand in the cave. Um, and it would have kind of a front chamber, the antechamber, where the body would just be, uh, it would just be laid there. And the body would, would be wrapped in some kind of cloth and spices and uh, 
the Jewish custom was to wait for one year for the body to decompose. Then the bones would be gathered in an ossuary, a little box, and then that box would be put in a niche in the cave. The, there was no like mummification process. That's not what the spices are for. The spices actually are just to cover up the stench of the body as it decomposes. And we have a, a, a beautiful detail uh, when we look at the, this narrative carefully. It says that Nicodemus brings 75 pounds of spices. Now, I'm using pounds there like in, in, in freedom units, you know, in American units. Um, it, it, if you look at the Greek text, it's 100 pounds, but it means Roman pounds, which is equivalent of 75 modern pounds. Um, that, that many pounds or that much, uh, you know, bulk of spices, it would be worth a fortune, at somewhere between tens of thousands of dollars to perhaps well over a hundred thousand dollars. Nicodemus is providing a burial that would be fit for a king, you know, in, in, kind of a poetic beauty twist, you know, befitting of the king of the Jews, which has been the claim all along, right? Why Jesus was crucified. Um, in fact, the, the amount of spices is, is so large that some people say, oh, maybe John just meant like a really large amount of spices, not really 75 pounds. I mean, sure, whatever. I, it's such a detail. I'm not going to fight over that. But it, it sure does seem to be really 75 pounds of spices, which, which would be incredible. Um, we have multiple stories from the ancient world where kings would be buried with also very, very large amounts of spices. You know, it's, it honors them. It shows how important they were, how wealthy they were, and so forth. Um, this is also reminiscent of Mary anointing Jesus with the expensive perfume. We're seeing the same thing here, that as Jesus dies, his followers try to anoint him, try to honor him as a king. Um, again, which, which is just so beautifully connected to the charge against Jesus. Um, I have mostly discussed his, his burial already. Uh, sorry, I'm kind of going through my blog and thinking if there's anything there that I want to add here. But I think, oh, the only thing that I'll add at this point, because it will become relevant later, is the fact that in front of the tomb, there would there would be a large stone that would that would seal the tomb. Um, the stone would be would would roll into a groove, and it would it would be bigger than the than the cave's opening. So uh, it would be it would be very difficult as it is to roll the stone if you were outside of the tomb, and it would be nearly impossible to roll the stone if you were inside of the tomb because it's in a groove, so you can't roll it sideways, if you understand what I mean. Um, so, the, and again, that detail, it will be relevant later. From, you know, we know the size of, of, of a tomb that would be standard for a man as wealthy as Joseph of Arimathea. So we can safely speculate the stone would be about a yard in diameter, about a meter. Um, okay. So those are all of the, you know, uh, intricacies of the text, the, the Old Testament connections, kind of the, the historical, um, the historical data that we want to look at. Now, I want to spend the last few minutes that I have to talk about the significance of the cross, why it is that Jesus dies you know, what does it mean? And we've already seen that, you know, really all the theology we've discussed, uh, even if just briefly, we've talked about the Pascal lamb, and how his blood, uh, if applied, would uh, make, would, would, would prevent the judgment of God, right? That's very much the connection with the Pascal lamb. Um, we've also seen the connection with, with this idea of, of piercing his side, which takes us back to Zechariah, which this talks about cleansing, right? The sacrifice will cleanse the people, which notice is a little bit different from the idea of avoiding God's judgment. They're very much connected, but they're two different concepts. And I, 
Okay. I may regret this. I may really regret this, but uh, instead of, of uh, trying to speak of the atonement of Christ in a very just kind of scholarly way, I thought, how can I put this in a way that makes sense to a more modern audience? So I thought, okay, maybe I can put this in the context of more of like a medieval setting, something that we are familiar with. And so I wrote a short story, analogy, parable, whatever you want to call it. And I'm going to read it out loud because it hopefully it encapsulates some of these themes. Now, if you think my story is too quaint or too silly or whatever, that's fair game. Yeah, I mean, you don't have to like it, that, that's okay. Um, but let me read it and then I want to discuss it. Um, the, the main reason I did it this way, by the way, is because I, I use a lot of dialogue and I find that the Socratic method is particularly good at bringing out the meaning of something. Okay, so I'm gonna read my short little story. Uh, it says, imagine a kingdom. The land is soft and fertile. The rain is plentiful yet measured. The rivers are so clean one can drink from them. The trees provide fruit and every bush gives berry. No thorns or weeds are found. Dangerous critters of any kind crawl on the ground or walk upon it. Yet no one lives there other than the king and his prince. Hey, Robert, I, I hate to interrupt you, but it seems like when you're getting further away from the mic there, it's we're losing you. Okay, I don't sorry. know if maybe you have a noise gate on it or something, but... It's kind of cutting in and out at times. Okay. I'll stay close. All right. Uh, and you might have to back up maybe a few sentences or maybe okay. start the story over. I apologize for interrupting, but we couldn't hear it. Okay. I'll, I'll start the story over. Right. <laughs> okay. Does that sound a little better? Uh, yeah, that okay. should be better. Um, sorry, guys. I keep messing with my settings and I can't find the right ones. Okay. So let me start over so you guys can make fun of my little story. Uh, okay, imagine a kingdom. The land is soft and fertile. The rain is plentiful yet measured. The rivers are so clean one can drink from them. The trees provide fruit and every bush gives berries. No thorns or weeds are found. No dangerous critters of any kind crawl on the ground or walk upon it. Yet no one lives there other than the king and his prince. The land was well suited for all the king's subjects, and the king wished his people to enjoy it. However, the king was a very good one who desired his people do good and rejoice. Yet all the people committed crimes against each other, the kingdom, and the king. Every single one was condemned to exile and eventually death. One day, as the king patrolled the borders of the kingdom, one of the exiles approached him. The man said, King, I have thought much about the condition of my countrymen and I. Grant me this request. Take my life here and now as payment for everyone's crimes. May our debt be settled and may my countrymen return to the kingdom. The king responded, you bargain with something that is not yours. You are a man on death row. You have forfeited your life already. Your crimes have taken it from you. You offer me something you do not possess. The man walked away hopeless. The next day, as the king prepared to patrol the borders once more, his son, the prince, approached him. King and judge, began the prince. Do you remember the conversation you had yesterday with that man? Yes, responded the king. May I make the same offer? A pause ensued. The gravity of their request was not lost on either man. Finally, the king nodded, granting permission. The prince added, My life is mine, for I have committed no crime. Indeed, I am the only one in the kingdom who has held on to his life. The king listened. These are my people. May their crimes be my crimes. May their penalties fall on my hand. And so may they return to the kingdom. Son, the king responded, If I spare them, I will not spare you. If there is to be justice in this world, a wrong must be treated as a wrong. I would have it no other way, responded the prince. Your life, the life of an innocent man, a regal life that can stand for the kingdoms, a proper and sufficient ransom, said the king. Yet he added, be that as it may, that is not the only problem. They are criminals. They lie, cheat, and steal. They feel sorrow at another's joy. They dream of calamities for their neighbor yet they forgive not the slightest iniquity aimed at them. He paused and then asked, shall I bring them to the kingdom as they are? It will no longer be a perfect kingdom. Alas, not even a good kingdom. The prince met the eyes of his king and responded, your words are true as always. May we therefore impose a condition? The king retorted, any price on their part is sure to go unpaid. Cheap and fickle people they are. Oh no, said the prince. Nothing but the simplest of conditions. They must believe I paid for their crimes. That is, they must believe they have committed crimes and that they have been paid for by them. 
A kind smile crossed the king's face. The king responded, that is both the smallest and the greatest of all conditions. For a man to believe that he has done wrong is to give up everything. He would have to look outside of himself for a judge and a jury. And what is left to him? His ways might not be the way. His thoughts might not be the truth. He might be mistaken in this or that. He would need direction. A man who believes such a thing is a servant of another, he said to himself. And to believe the prince has paid for his crimes would be a return to life. The prince would have to be one worthy of such a feat, one whose ways are right and whose words are true, one worthy of following and of the utmost gratitude. The prince would be the, ones, the one worthy to provide direction. And the death of the prince would exclaim the first instruction, I love you, you are accepted, enter the kingdom. A man who believes such a thing would be a man even more alive than he ever was before. Would you have them die and live again? Asked the king rhetorically. May it be so, said the prince. May it be so, said the king. So, again, if you found that to be a waste of time, it's okay. Uh, <laughs> uh, what, why, why did I write this, this short little story? I am trying to draw out the two main problems that we are that humanity is faced with, at least according to the Christian worldview. One is guilt for our wrongdoings, right? That there, if, again, if there is justice in this world, if God is just, then a wrong must be treated as a wrong. There must be punishment for what is done wrong. So that's one problem. And normally that's all that we hear about, right? We, we talk about Jesus atoning for our sin, meaning that he pays for our, for our wrongdoings. Okay. And, and that is a, that's a crucial part of the, the atonement. I'm by no means minimizing that. But there's really another problem that, that people don't often discuss, which is there's also a problem with, with our nature, right? That even if all wrongs are forgiven, okay, I agree to just look the other way and, and, and forgive them all. We continue to do them. We continue to commit these wrongs. Um, so there has to be a change in our nature, right? If heaven will be heaven, if we will one day all rejoice and there will be no more sorrow and all tears will be wiped away, will we reconciled with God who is perfect and with each other? Then our very nature has to change, right? We have to become better and not just better, but what in theology we would call impeccable. Perfect in character, but we just don't do anything wrong. And those are the two problems uh, that the cross remedies, right? Jesus pays for our sins, pays for our guilt, but on top of that, uh, by sending the, the the Holy Spirit, which is something that doesn't come up in my little story because I couldn't make a, I couldn't find a good way of fitting that in, but. He offers also this opportunity to be better. Uh, and again, I, I'm kind of downplaying it really to be impeccable. Um, so I, I hope that brings, that sheds some light on the cross and why it matters. And uh, that perhaps it's not as silly as, as you know, some edgy atheist <laughs> like to say. And with that, I'm going to finish my presentation let you guys discuss and feel free to correct anything that I said incorrectly. Thanks, Robert. Um, I'm, st I'm still getting a little bit of just ducking on your mic and I don't know if there's a way to adjust that, but it's like when your voice goes softer, it, it's you're, you're disappearing. Okay. Um, I didn't want to interrupt earlier, but, uh, but at points it was, it was a little bit tough to hear. So if we can get that adjusted, that'd be great. Um, okay. Or, Tell you know, me. you and, you and I can worry about it in off hours and do the, do the, uh, the tech adjustments uh, okay. on our own time. That may be better. Yeah, I, we, can, I, uh, we can figure okay. that out together. Uh, appreciate your patience with that, guys. Uh, as far as the uh, discussion of the matter at hand, uh, well, I should mention to everybody, we're, well, when we open for discussion here, uh, go ahead and type question in the chat. Uh, if you'd like to participate with a question or a point of discussion or anything like that. Um, and uh, I'll be happy to bring you in, in the order that we receive the requests. 
I know this is um this is probably a really small point that is not of uh theological significance maybe or maybe it is i don't know but when you were describing how the tombs are sealed mm-hmm. you use a giant rock basically impossible to move it from the inside mm-hmm. i understand why that would be significant in this context at least with where the story is going and my general understanding of it mm-hmm. why would it be designed that way in general though was there some what was the concern about opening tombs from the inside absent a resurrection? Oh, no, it's not really a concern. It just kind of works that way, which which is relevant later. But it oh. the, the their design purpose was the, the rock would be round uh, and it would fall into this groove. So it couldn't really move kind of directly yeah. in and out of the cave, only kind of sideways right it could like slide in a sense sideways um and it had the end result that opening it from the inside was near impossible that that certainly wasn't the design purpose just the consequence and i'm only pointing that out because it it will come into play later yeah i i i understand the significance uh in in the context of this story certainly and i i just interpreted that as they were worried about i don't know zombie apocalypse (laughs) like they were really worried about what happens with Jesus happening with other people potentially, but I guess yeah. that's not the case. No, no, no. Uh, anyway, we don't have any uh, requests to speak just yet. So okay. are there any themes that you feel like you glossed over or any points of detail that you'd like to spend some more time on? Um, sure. Um, well, I really thought if there was going to be discussion any day it would be today. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I see that there's a question now. Uh, which one? I didn't. Maybe I missed it. If you Gilgamesh. Got it, go ahead. He, he just he just posted it, or he just commented. Uh, Gilgamesh, if you want to speak, go ahead. Uh, otherwise, uh, I can read out any points of discussion as well. Oh, he did post yeah. earlier. I just missed it. You posted it way oh. earlier. My apologies. Yeah, I said hello at the beginning. Uh, yeah. yeah. So go ahead and chime in. Well, you know, the whole another reason for you know is his death is because if he doesn't die, then Christianity isn't his, you know, can't exist. So he, you know, this whole thing with um, his crucifixion, because after he he comes back, Christianity, you know, comes into existence. And I know there's, there's a lot of people that go, you know, still hold a grudge against the Jews for the crucifixion. But I go like this, well, if he doesn't die on the cross, then he can't come back and show people what he was teaching them is the way. So his death had to happen. He knew that. And, you know, so that's why uh, the fact that they didn't break his bones, like they said, because he was dead. I think, like you said, the, the whole breaking of the bones was so that if they were still alive, they couldn't, you know, they couldn't get away. They would, you know, it would be a pain, you know, make sure that they died so they couldn't get up and try to run away after being crucified. And yeah. Well, yeah. Oh, um, oh, go ahead. Sorry. No, I was, you were about to say something. So I was like, go ahead. <laughs> no, I, I was just going to say, yeah, the breaking of the bones is so they would die quicker uh, yeah. because then they wouldn't be able to hold themselves, them, themselves up by their legs, which, uh-huh. you know, would kill them. Um, yeah. But just, just so. so I understand, this would happen already. Like the crucifixion has already started; it's in process. Yeah. They wait X amount of time. Well, the, the Romans would let them hang there for days. It would take yeah. days to die. But the the problem here was that the Jews had to get these people buried before nightfall, technically yeah. before six p.m. But you get what I mean. And so that's why they go to the Romans and they say, "We got to speed this up." So. Go ahead and break their legs, and that after breaking their legs, they would die almost instantly. Uh, I mean, when I say that, they would die within minutes, as opposed to within hours or days. Yeah, because they would bleed out essentially. Wait, they if would the suffocate. Pure, so yeah, this okay. was this was like a hurry up type gesture. Yeah. For I know exactly. it's a morbid concept, but it's not like crucify them, break their legs while you're no, doing no, no. the initial crucifixion. No, it's they a, bring them down afterwards and do it. To make sure that they're dead if they survived. The, no, no, no. They're still alive up on the cross. Do they hit them when they're up on the cross still? Yes. Oh, yeah. Okay. So, 
So they're right. They're hanging from their arms and their yeah. legs, and they can use their legs to prop themselves up to continue breathing. But if you break their legs, now they're only hanging from their stretched arms. They can't hold up their weight, so they suffocate while on the cross. Oh, okay. And in fact, it this is. I mean, they break their legs with a mallet. It's horrifically gruesome, but yeah. in a sense, in a weird sense. This is this is almost an act of mercy, mercy because the alternative was for them to just suffer there for days uh-huh. and days. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah. Well, thanks. Yeah, thanks for the thoughts, Gilliam. Oh yeah. You. Have a good night. You as well. Let's see. I think we had a written question here. Uh, Donald Bryan says, uh, "Robert, walk me through the timekeeping of the three days, like I'm five years old." Ah. Okay. So. I know what this person is getting at, right? We normally say that that Jesus is resurrected on the third day, or we might even phrase it differently and say that Jesus was dead for three days, or this one particular passage that says he would be in the ground three days and three nights like Jonah was in the belly of the fish. And I'm not quoting that exactly right, but I'm close enough. Um, and when we look at this from our modern standpoint, three days don't go by, two days go by, right? Like we, we think he died on Friday and he came back to life on Sunday. So we're thinking like Saturday is one day and Sunday is another day. <laughs> so we only have two days. But um, they just counted days differently. It's really what this, it's just a cultural difference. Um, and because everything in the Bible is phrased as three days, we continue to do so today, which is fine. Um, but Friday when he died, when Jesus died would have been the first day. Um, and then Saturday would have been this, the second day. And then, uh, Sunday would be the third day. And they just spoke of it like that. Like, you know, he was, resurrected on the third day he was he was dead for three days it's not it's not three literal days in the sense of like 72 hours it means that three days were involved friday saturday and sunday and they just speak of it a little differently okay denby uh go ahead and chime in if you're ready uh yeah, uh, just a simple thing about that. You might uh, you might be wondering from, from a little bit about the, you know what we know about crucifixion. One thing we know is that no one is at, no one ever survived crucifixion, and we know that thanks to Josephus. And I learned this through Tom Holland. Is um, Josephus uh, was in on good terms with the Roman government, so there were a few times where he asked for someone to be taken down from a cross from the cross shortly after the crucifixion had started, none of them survived. Oh, I did not know that fact that yeah. the crucifixion was incomplete and then they, they were taken down. Yeah, but they still didn't live. Wow. Like, you know, it's just like, yeah, it was fatal in every, in every case, even when someone was technically reprieved. Hmm. So, wow. Okay, that kind of thought that yeah. was important to to note. Yeah. Do we do we have any idea of the scale at which this was practiced? I know it's not like we're going to get an exact number, but how oh. how common, how frequent was this uh, as a method of justice? Very um, common. Oh, sorry, Debbie. If you want to. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, it's um, it's it's a little bit hard to say, like um how common it is because like obviously with the with the case of the Spartacus result or revolt they they crucified five thousand slaves all at once along the Apian way. Um but then um you know, there are places that were more pacified than Judea where they wouldn't necessarily do it very much. Um you know so but- it's it's like the frequency isn't like it's not as simple as like they did it like this like because you know um you know essentially the crime for rebellion or you know yeah. for well i just want to make sure that i'm understanding Rome. correctly you're so you're saying there are thousands it's, it's this has happened thousands of times and nobody's ever 
there was no documentation of anybody ever surviving it, right? That's right. That's right. Which yes. would be, I mean, even when we think of our modern forms of execution, we have uh, we have occasional errors, you know? Yes. Uh, to not have a single uh, botched crucifixion, for lack of a better term, uh, that's that's saying something. But I suppose when you think about not just the the violent method of doing it, but the duration that you're out there, just without other necessities, food, water, etc. Uh, pretty mm-hmm. tough to survive, I would imagine. You know, and, and like, don't forget, you're with crucifixion. You're you're tormented. You're tortured beforehand. Mm-hmm. You know, so yeah. you're you're not you're not going onto the cross in anything like good health. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, like, I you know, it wasn't it was uh, on Tom Holland's history podcast that I found out that Josephus had requested people to be reprieved after they'd. You know, crucifixion started, but then none of them lived. So, I mean, it's pretty definitive. Yeah. You know, there's, there's right. just, you know, not a survivable event. Yeah. Thanks for the historical context on that. Do you have any other thoughts before uh, before we move to the next question? Uh, no, not really. I just thought that was uh, the important thing to note because there's something I, I just heard recently myself. All right. Well, thanks for the thoughts. Thank you. Chris, if you're ready to go, Go ahead. Yeah, thanks as always for the opportunity to uh, ask a question. So uh, first, Robert, I just want to say, I, I, for what it's worth, I do appreciate your 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 uh, parallel story. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, I thought that was, uh, yeah, I thought there was quite a bit of value in that. And but so my question is is kind of an academic one. It's not. There's no. There, I'm not reading anything out of this. I'm just curious. The uh, the stone that was used, I know you mentioned it was round. Was it round like a disc or round like a sphere, like a ball? Uh, from what I understand, it would be disc shaped. Um, now, keep in mind, this is the ancient world. I mean, they can work with stone, but it's not going to be, or I think it's unlikely it was like a perfect disc, but it was disc shaped, generally speaking. Okay. All right. That was that was my question. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Um, and I did read about that. I don't have any pictures. Maybe I should have uh, put some pictures on the blog or something, but that is my understanding. If it had been like a ball, I was just kind of picturing like it rolling almost like, uh, it, like in Raiders of the Lost mm. Ark. Matt, Matt, Matt won't understand that because he doesn't watch movies. But... <laughs> I've not seen that one, but it might come up. <laughs> I, was just, I was just curious. Thanks. Thanks, Chris. I think we're all caught up on requests to speak. Um, so uh, if there's any particular topic, we got seven minutes left. Um, if there's any particular particular topic you want to get into a little bit more, Robert, or we can call it an early evening if you'd prefer, whatever, whatever you'd like to do. Sure. Let me mention one thing. By the way, is the audio any better at all? I actually think this is a lot better. It's it's much louder okay. and clearer. Um, okay. Yeah, just something I, was, it was like whenever you got softer, it just would, it okay. would trail off. Like we couldn't hear it. I had not turned the original sound on in the Zoom call. So uh, I think Zoom has a gate and my mic has a gate. Yeah. And they were, you combining. know, yeah. combining. It was probably yes. something like that. Yeah. So I'm sorry about that. I'll remember in the future. But um, just to, you know, People who've been listening to this, I think they clearly like the more academic side of, of things. You know, that's the approach I've taken to the book of John. So um, if you're more interested in the atonement, the, you know, the, the themes that I discussed, they do have more scholarly names. Like this idea of Christ paying for our sins is called substitutionary atonement. And if you Google that, you know, you'll find many, many resources on, on the matter. Um, and that... You know, not all Christian traditions, but most Christian traditions see that as, as kind of the main theme of the death of Christ, the substitutionary atonement. He died in our place for our sins. Um, there's there's other, but that's not really the only thing happening in the in the atonement. There's other things like the ransom theory and even the moral influence theory. And the only reason I'm throwing those terms out there is, like I said, if anyone has been listening to this and, and they want to dig deeper. Those are the terms you're probably after. Um, but I try to represent those ideas as much as I could in 
you know, my little story. Um, and I'm kind of surprised that no one really had comments on on the atonement of Christ per se. Uh, but you explained it perfectly. There was, I guess, there was so. No, there's nothing <laughs> unclear yeah. about it at all. Yeah, first theologian in the history of humanity to be like <laughs> explained perfectly. Yeah. All right. Uh, well, we'll 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 do last call on any points of discussion. If anybody any anybody wants to. Uh, join, go ahead and write question in the chat or just, you know, unmute your mic at this point. Uh, it's not like we have a long line to deal with. So you're welcome to uh, jump in I'm trying to, uh, I didn't do as good of jot. Normally I like to jot down my thoughts uh, during the lesson. So I remember the questions I had and, and come back to them, but I didn't do as good of a job with my note-taking this time. Um, Can I say something? Yeah, go ahead. Cindy. Hi. Um, it's not really about the atonement part of it, but you know, the represent the representative nature, you know, of Christ being the lamb. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's interesting when you just kind of slow down and pay attention that um, just everything in the Bible is like that. And really kind of everything is, in life is like that, where you can take it back to, to a lesson, you know, um, you know, do we stone people? No, we don't do that anymore. But it's still representative of making that conscious separation for people who are destructive to culture, or destructive to your family, or, you know, you, you, we do still, it is still healthy to separate where Old Testament was taken to this town of Stoneham. The New Testament talks about separation, but that concept is still there, right? <laughs> or the idea of, um, you know, they talk about in the old Testament about not being prejudicial, prejudicial during judgment, right? You don't favor a widow just because you pity her, even though she, she's not right in the judgment, but you don't, or you don't favor, you know, Oh, he can afford to pay. So we'll favor the widow or, you know, we're going to play favor for the authority figure because we want him to like us. You know, there's like instruction not to do that. And um, you know, that goes, to everything right that goes to clicks that goes to so just that represented kind of sounds a little off but like for me and the way we talk about things like it's always like that like everything has some sort of a tie that is broad sweeping beyond don't eat pork <laughs> you know mm -hmm. the idea of self-restraint the idea of um discipline just for the sake of discipline it's such a small thing to ask right i mean it's it's on all it's all over, all over the place and scales all over the place so i don't know if that's that's a little rambly but yeah thanks but. cindy appreciate it um yeah a lot of those concepts are exactly why i'm interested in participating in this in the first place we have a lot of concepts of justice morality fairness that present themselves in politics or law that where do, where do those come from? What is the foundation of those? What's, what's the origin of those concepts? And uh, that's that's the stuff that's most fascinating to learn about in this context for me. I don't know if you have any uh, thoughts on some of the things Cindy was talking about, Robert. I think she's exactly right. Um, you know, I mentioned typology, how things in the Old Testament are types for Christ. They point to Christ and they inform us about Christ. Um now, typology can be taken too far, and I'm not saying Cindy is doing this by any means. I'm just saying other people sometimes will do that. So you, you always have to kind of make sure that typology is being used correctly and not you know, be taken too far. But I think some people are so leery of it that they don't want to use it at all, and then they miss the significance of all these beautiful symbols in the Old Testament. So we have to apply it wisely, but we, we certainly need to apply it. Thanks, Cindy. I do have a couple of uh, written questions or comments here before we close out. Juggernaut says, uh, Desi does designing circuits make me an architect of satanic symbology? I assume we mean the literal, uh, actual electrical circuits, I'm guessing, right? Um, if you're an expert in satanic symbolism, but... I, I'm neither an expert in circuits or satanic symbology, so... Yeah. Uh, so I guess we'll have to punt on that one, Juggernaut. But if you uh, if you want to chime in quickly before we sign off, you're welcome to do that. Lastly, we have a comment from Patrick uh, who says, 
thanks for the story that you made, Robert. It was uh, helpful, and I'm totally stealing it to tell to an atheist friend of mine. Well, good luck in that endeavor. Yep. Uh, all right, we're uh, we're at the top of the hour, though. Uh, do you have anything else you want to say before we're finished up? Uh, no, that's it. Just re- remember, we won't have Bible study next weekend, but then after that, we should have no more interruptions until we finish this book once and for all. It will only have taken like nine months. <laughs> well, we got a lot of detail in the process, so that's uh, that's a good thing. So yeah, we will uh, we'll catch you back here on February 18th. We will be off on the 11th. As a reminder, if you missed any part of the lesson, uh, you can listen back to it on the Bible study page of the website. It's linked on the homepage as well, mattchristiansandmedia.com. And uh, during the additional week off here, if you have some thoughts or some questions for myself or for Robert, you can also get in touch with either of us through the Bible study page as well. Uh, Again, you can find that linked on the homepage of the website. We will catch you back here on the 18th. Thanks for your participation and have a great night, everybody.